Hey everyone, welcome to the podcast for Zionstone United Church of Christ in Northampton, Pennsylvania. My name is Pastor Mike Landsman, and this podcast is taken from my weekly Sunday sermons. I pray that they'll be a blessing to you, and if you're ever in the area, please stop in and worship with us. We'd love to have you. Good morning, everybody. Ooh, that was the best ever so far, I think. <laughs> I couldn't orchestrated that better myself. Last week, we, we, we've been going, well, the past few weeks now, we've been going through the Apostles' Creed. I think we're in part six right now. And uh, last week, we talked about what it means when we say Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. And we talked about how the virgin birth is a story that is an ongoing uh, story that we see in the Old Testament. We see these stories of miraculous births. We see Isaac, the son of the promise to Abraham, who, who, from whom comes Jacob, from whom comes the 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel, who become the nation of Israel, through whom Jesus comes. And we talked about Samson, the great judge of Israel, his, his, parent, his mother was barren, and God blessed them with a son, and he was specially gifted. The Holy Spirit would come upon him, and he would be able to do miraculous feats of strength and battle. And we talked about Samuel with his, his mother was barren. She couldn't have children, and the Lord blessed her with Samuel. And Samuel, he brings about this, this renewal of worship of God, and he winds up anointing the kings of Israel, one of whom is David, who will become one of the ancestors of Jesus. So we see here... In the virgin birth, the virgin conception, that God himself is taking the initiative this time. No human father is involved in conception, yet Jesus is still born the normal way humans are. And we're talking about how Mary's yes to God, her assent to God's will, her assent to obedience is our yes to God's will and our yes uh, to do what he's asked us to do as well. So now we come to the part of the creed where it says, he suffered under Pontius Pilate and was crucified. And it's interesting to me that the creed goes from his birth to his death, burial, and resurrection. Now, I've read some theologians and some authors who say, and they've suggested that the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed are somehow lacking because they don't have a section in here about Jesus' public ministry. Like, it doesn't say that Jesus went around doing this, 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 and this, and then he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, suffered, and was buried. They don't have that. They don't have a summary of that in the creed. But when we remember the role of creeds in the life of the Christian, we, the creeds are part of what you learn when you go about catechism. So they were meant to go along with teaching about who Jesus is, what Jesus does. And it's meant to, to summarize basically the main beats of what's going on in, in the life of Jesus. And so them not mentioning his healing the sick or casting out evil spirits or feeding the masses, they don't skip this because his public ministry isn't important. They meant, they, they, they're trying to focus on a particular thing, and they're, they're meant to, a theologian named Meyer says, remind us of the larger narrative and to focus our attention on Jesus' identity as being both divine and human. So today we're going to talk about what it means when it says he suffered under Pontius Pilate. So in Mark 8.31, Jesus says, the Son of Man must suffer and be killed. So when we talk about Jesus' suffering, we often immediately think of the cross. We always immediately associate his suffering with the Passion Week. And the gospel writers themselves, they devote considerable lengths of time to the Passion narrative. Because the cross is where his suffering reaches its zenith. It's where it's focused. But I think 
we have to remember that to isolate his suffering there doesn't quite do justice to his human life and mission. And, and I don't think that the week of his death, it's not the only place where Jesus suffered. In Isaiah 53.3, the prophet reminds us, he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. A theologian named Odin notes that when we speak of his sufferings, we speak of everything he suffered in his life. His temptation, his being despised, his being rejected, betrayed, plotted against, his own hunger, his poverty, his being tired, and his physical death, the hostile opposition of his own people. In other words, his sufferings were very real and well-rounded, and they reflect the sufferings of the people he came to save. They reflect also our sufferings. We have a fully formed view of Jesus in Scripture, not just of being divine, but also of being human. We see him, like, like, the theolo- like Odin said, we see him tired. We see him hungry. We see him poor. We, we see people coming up against him in his ministry. When he casts out evil spirits, some of the religious leaders say, you are casting out spirit, evil spirits through the Lord of the evil spirits. And then Jesus says, a house divided against itself cannot stand. There's even a portion in the scripture where, where, where some of his family don't believe in who he is. And they come to kind of like, hey, come on home with us. He, his sufferings aren't just located to what happened on the cross. His sufferings are also experienced through what it means to be human. The sufferings that we go through, the sufferings that you've gone through, Jesus suffered like us, and he suffered for us. He also reflects the suffering of the people of Israel as a whole and their long history. And in his sufferings, he's filling up in himself all of theirs, as well as experiencing the range of suffering that we experience as human beings. And like I said, he does all of this because it's part of the plan of God, and he does it for us. In Acts 17, 2 through 3, it says, As was his custom, Paul went to the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. So St. Paul links Jesus' suffering and crucifixion with the Messianic promises of the Hebrew Scriptures. We could spend hours and hours on this, brothers and sisters. But like the creed, I won't do that to you, I'm highlighting key components of the pieces that form the pattern of the puzzle, that form a recognizable picture. St. Paul also links something with Christ's sufferings. He says in Romans 8, 17 to 18, if we are children, we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. This, particularly if you come from a background that I come out of, scriptures like this are very, very hard. Because I lived a large portion of my life in what was called, what you could call nowadays, the prosperity gospel, which says if you do the right things, if you say the right things, If you have even the right attitude, then God will reward you with with health, with finances, with everything that you need. And there's different levels of this. You have some people who are very hardcore into it, who have like worked out if you give X amount of money, you can believe God for X amount of return. But then you also have people like those who are on television who just say, hey, it's okay. 
Be happy. Have a good attitude. God will turn everything around if you just try harder. Scriptures like this are hard for us, especially now in our own culture, because this kind of thinking is deep within the church and our culture. There's a dangerous theology that says we don't have to suffer because Jesus took all of our suffering upon himself. Now, this isn't completely untrue, but it it's, it's, here's the thing. It's not completely wrong to say that Jesus takes our sufferings so we don't ever have to suffer anymore. In one regards, that's true. In one regards, that's true. It's true in that that's something that awaits us, brothers and sisters. That that's something that is held for us at the end of the age. It, it's something that we call the eschaton is the fancy word, right? The end of the age when God makes all things new. That's when our suffering finally comes to an end. That's when our bodies are fully conformed to the image of Christ. It's not something that we can experience fully now, right? Sometimes God is merciful. Sometimes God is gracious. And sometimes in response to our suffering, because Jesus did this himself, right, in the Gospels, God can touch. God can bring relief. God can heal. But those are all tastes They're all tastes. They're like a really good sample of what life will be like for us in the age to come. The self-denial that Jesus shows by him embracing his sufferings is our model because he reminds us to be his followers. He says, you are to take up your cross every once in a while. You're going to take up your cross once a year. Uh, maybe, maybe twice a year, if you're going to follow me, you can take up your cross. No, he says, if you want to follow me, you have to take up your cross daily, daily, and follow me. And this kind of dovetails with what we talked about about Jesus being, about being Lord, is that we have multiple allegiances in our world, right, to the nation, to the state, to whatever political party we, we're part of, but our ultimate allegiance is to Jesus, And if Jesus demonstrates through his life, through his sufferings, his self-giving love, then that's what we're called to model. We're called to model too. So the creed mentions also Pontius Pilate. He's the only person actually named in the creed. So this should lead us to ask the question, well, why is Pilate mentioned? And the catechism of the, the ACNA church says this, the creed makes clear that Jesus' life and death were real events that occurred at a particular time and place in Judea in the first century. So we could say that Pilate's mentioned to show that events of Jesus' life are something that can be placed in time. So no matter when or where we confess Christ, we can place him as an actual person living in an actual place in an actual time period surrounded by actual people. It makes us also not forget that God works in our world. It's easy to think of it as a neat story with moral lessons, but that's not just quite the case. Even though it is, we can learn moral lessons, but there's more going on. And also, it's, it's, it's helpful to remember, Pilate was a cruel governor. And if you go back and you read the historical sources that exist about Pilate, he was a very bad guy. He was not a good dude. He was kind of a wicked man. And as such, Pilate is a mirror for us of unbelieving humanity. Because when he's confronted with Jesus, and he's even convinced of Jesus' innocence, he decides that it's more politically expedient to still have Jesus handed over and put to death than to declare him innocent. 
right? So coming face to face with Jesus's identity, who Jesus is, who Jesus, what he claims to be. I mean, Pilate even makes the sign, right? And he puts it up in, in, in Hebrew and in, in Greek and Latin, right? Jesus, the king of the Jews. Like, he even knows. Maybe it was done in mockery, but he still does it. There's still a recognition of who Jesus is. Pilate is the one who, confronted with the reality of Jesus' kingship, sentences, sentences him anyway. He is the exemplar of the person who rejects Jesus in spite of all the evidence pointing to what Jesus said about himself being true. And as such, he is a reminder of human sinfulness, human cowardice, and human unbelief. And the hardness of the human heart that even faced with the Son of God himself. Pilate, even we, in the story, Pilate's wife says, listen, let this guy go. I had this really trippy dream. In, in spite of all of this, Pilate is the one who does this, who turns his back on Christ and hands him up to be crucified anyway. As such, he's a mirror of unbelieving humanity. Then Jesus is crucified. Luke 23, 33. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. So now we come to the crucifixion, the supreme moment where a paradox was made visible. Through the defeat and the shame of the cross, Jesus conquered and destroyed death, sin, and the forces of evil. Now we know that crucifixion is probably one of the worst ways to die. It is so painful, the word we get to describe unendurable pain comes from it. The word is excruciating. The theologian in Myers, he notes that the whole purpose of life in Roman culture was trying to acquire honor and to shun what would diminish one's reputation, right? So I say this because for the Romans, crucifixion is the height of shame being accrued on somebody. And this is why crucifixion is used primarily for slaves and also for people who revolt against the might of Rome. It's meant to not only hurt you, right, and to kill you slowly as an object lesson of saying, hey, this is what happens if you come up against the might of Rome, this slow, excruciating death over the period of a few days. It's also meant so the person who's being on display is publicly shamed, which is publicly shamed, which is why people were not only, when they're beaten and mocked and scourged and all of that stuff, they're also crucified naked. It is the ultimate act of heaping shame on someone. And in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy, it says, accursed is anyone who hangs on the tree. So for both Jews and Gentiles, the cross is a symbol of shame. Now think about this. For the Jews... And for the Greek-speaking people, in the, the Latin-speaking people, the cross is a symbol of shame. Now, along come Christians, and they say the true God who made all things subjected himself to the worst form of torture imaginable and endured the heights of shame. This is why the cross is a scandal, brothers and sisters. But this shame is transformed into glory in this defeat and the triumph. And, you know, initially I wasn't going to talk a lot about shame today. I was just going to kind of mention it and move on. But as I was thinking about the sermon this morning, I started thinking a little bit more about shame, and, and maybe somebody needs to hear this today. So let's talk a little bit about shame. So we see shame in the Genesis story, 
right? Adam and Eve, they eat the fruit that God says, you can have anything you want here. I've given you all these things to enjoy. This one thing over here is not for you. And we know the story. They eat the fruit and everything gets messed up, right? And then what happens? God comes walking among the garden looking for them. And he's like, hey, where are you guys? And we're, we're Adam and Eve. They were like, oh, hey, we're over here. We're just checking out this really cool lake, you know, swimming with the crocodiles. It's a lot of fun. No, they're hiding. They're hiding from God. They're hiding from him because they're ashamed of what they've done. They're ashamed of what they've done. And sin does that. When we sin, we feel not only guilt, but we also feel many times shame. This sense of, I can't even describe what it's like beyond guilt. But one of the beautiful things about what Jesus does at the cross is when when he is nailed to the cross, when he is raised up, naked, beaten, scourged, bloody for all to see, he's not only taking all of our sin upon himself, but all of that shame that comes with sin. All of that shame that comes when we do something wrong, when we break the law of God. Jesus is taking all of that shame upon himself on the cross. Not just sin and death, but he is experiencing the heights of shame for us. Because when we come into Christ, when we, when we become part of his family, when we are washed, it's not only sin and death that he removes, but he also removes our shame. And many times when we come into the faith, we bring with us the shame of things we've done in the past. But Christ has taken that shame upon himself and he offers forgiveness and wholeness. And if you're sitting out there and you're putting yourself under condemnation and you're experiencing shame, know that Christ has freed you from that shame. In 1 Corinthians 2.8, St. Paul writes, None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would have not have crucified the Lord of glory. So something that is happening on the cross that's not immediately visible to those who crucified Jesus, not only to the Romans and the Jewish leaders, but also to the evil spiritual powers that are behind them. So on the cross, Jesus is not only atoning for human sin, he's also dealing a death blow to the devil and the spiritual powers of evil. Now, books upon books have been written on what's called atonement, which is this description of what it means and what happened with Jesus' death on the cross. Now, there's many different atonement theories that we could talk about, and we're not going to. Because Scripture uses a lot of different language to describe what's happening on the cross. But there's one model that keeps coming up over and over again, particularly in the post-apostolic fathers, this, this idea that I think all other atonement theories come under is this idea of Christus victor, right, of Christ victorious. And I think that this is the key model of atonement when we read scripture about what Jesus is doing on the cross. And so what happens here with Christus victor, it's reflected in the rest of the creed, and we'll talk about that more next week. But St. Paul again says in Colossians 2, 3, 13 to 15, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive 
together with him, having forgiving us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So notice Jesus' death on the cross, our record of debt was canceled. Notice it doesn't say that Jesus paid the record of debt. It says that he cancels the the record of death. Our trespasses are forgiven. They are nailed to the cross. We were dead. We are now made alive in him. And all of that shame that we experience, all of that shame that we feel, Jesus, through his death, he disarms the rulers and the authorities, and all of that shame he puts on them by triumphing over them. So at this moment of shame becomes the moment of shame for all of the powers of evil, not just human institutions of evil. There is this movement in Christianity to focus all of our energy upon unjust social practices, and we should, and that's good work that Jesus calls us to do. But Jesus isn't just putting an end to unjust social practices. He is destroying the power of the evil one and the power of the evil spiritual forces that animate all of the origin point of all of these social injustices and ills that humans face. He's putting them to open shame. His death is a triumph over every form of evil in every expression across all ages and across all times. And because of this, we can then do what St. Paul says in his epistle to the Ephesians, that we can give thanks to the Lord, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in our hearts to the Lord, because this is our response of being liberated from that shame, about being liberated from the powers of sin and death, and the powers of evil that give power to the, to the human forces of sin and death. Finally, I've read this quote before, but I think it's just such a perfect description of what's happening here when Jesus is crucified. And next week, we'll talk about being dead, buried, and descending to the dead. But one of the church fathers named Athanasius of Alexandria said this, and we'll close with this. He said, he, Christ, accepted and bore upon the cross a death inflicted by others. And those, others, and those other his special enemies, a death which to them was supremely terrible and by no means to be faced. And he did this in order that by destroying even this death, he might himself be believed to be life and the power of death be recognized as finally annulled or done away with. Then he says this, probably one of my most favorite quotes in all of church history. A marvelous and mighty paradox has thus occurred. For the death which they thought to inflict on him as dishonor and disgrace has become the glorious monument to death's defeat. And so to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who through his death took our shame, took our sin, and destroyed all powers of evil, both human and spiritual, be all glory together with his Father who is from everlasting and is all holy, good, and life-giving spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast for Zion Stone United Church of Christ. You know, our church has deep roots here in the community, and we predate the founding of the United States itself. If you're looking for a church that is biblically faithful and traditionally grounded, come visit us 
we may just be the church for you. You can find us online, zionsstoneucc.com. You can find us on Facebook as well, zionsstoneucc. I'm Pastor Mike Landsman. If you'd like to send me an email, you can reach me at malandsman at gmail.com. Once again, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. May God bless you, and we hope to have you visit us. Thank you.